Hey, welcome to Ask a Pastor. I'm joined today by Josiah and George. Uh, well, we hello. all get a chance to serve as part of the staff here at Orchard Hill. And before we jump into today's question, I want to just uh, ask you guys a couple things about what you anticipate you will change about your own rhythms kind of coming out of quarantine. And just so you know, we are um, somewhat social distanced here. Um, Josiah's coming to you from Moon, George is in Mars, <laughs> and I'm in Wexford. Um, and if you're not from Pittsburgh, those are actual names of towns right around us. They we have Moon, we have enough. Mars on either side of us, but um, we are uh, practicing some distance. But what, are, what do you guys anticipate will be different for you? What will you change because of this time to your own rhythm of life? Mm. For me, I think one thing that my wife and I will continue to implement is connecting with friends and family through face, uh, you know, video interactions mm -hmm. over the web. You know, I can't say I love long extended phone calls. And uh, my wife is a big game person, and I do not have the energy to keep up with her <laughs> when it comes to playing categories and all these games that she would just love if we could play, you know, on a nightly basis. And, uh, so we've hung out with her family to kind of get some connection that way. And I think we'll continue to do that. Um, I would hope that maybe some of those interactions, we can have more face-to-face -face and less video time. But man, what a great way to connect with people who we don't often see. Yeah. So so you'd see, so in other words, the, the takeaway has been how helpful it's been to connect that way to say, sometimes it's nice just instead of spending a whole evening, let's do an hour or a 40-minute Zoom call. And you feel connected without having to say, we just connect, con committed three, four hours to this. Yeah. And All some right. of the family that Friendship we... Friendship on speed dial with Josiah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just going to yeah. say, some of the family that we see less frequently, we just yeah. don't stay in touch great between those kind of face-to-face -face gatherings. So mm. yeah. it'd, be a, it'd be a helpful thing to have that be a little bit more regular. Yeah. It actually makes sense. And, and there is something like I've found, uh, like during this time, our board meetings at church have been on Zoom. And, mm. uh, and I've actually kind of liked that instead of like being at home at night to have a board meeting instead of sure. being here, I don't know if that'll be able to continue, but I assume we'll have to get back together in person. But, but like I had a board meeting last night and it was, you know, I had dinner with my family instead of not, I had, you know, um, then went to the meeting when the meeting was done, it was click and you're right back to life. Easy commute. Of, yeah. You're already uh, there. The whole thing. <clears throat> I know the leftovers for Josh after the fact. That's right. But even when we're back together, food's probably off the table for a while because, you know, how can you like share a utensil to, to get that out? And so, yeah, sheets for you, man. Sheets for you. Uh, George, how about you? What, what do you anticipate being different? Um, I, I know that we've enjoyed the fact that we're settled in. I'm spending time together, you know, whether it's coerced or uh, free. I, I love the fact that we have been set in a space for uh, a period of time. It's been really enjoyable to, to hang out with, uh, with the kids as much. And even the evening devotionals, you know, that we, we've had mm -hmm. going on. Uh, it's just, like you said, such a, an easy transition in the evening. You're in, you're out of them real quick. It's not a run to the church. Um, I know that our life group has weekly been doing dinners online and it's been pretty cool. Somebody nice. offers up a, a, a recipe and, you know, we all make that oh, recipe neat. 
at our houses. What a fun idea. And it, it, it was a great idea. I'm not sure which one of our life group members came up with it, but I think that's something we may even hold on to, that we'll do yeah. that uh, even if it's just infrequently. Heaven so in a crock kind of pot. A, that's right. Get a little heaven <laughs> in a crock pot. Yes. Um, and it's, you know, I think, especially when you have young kids like you do, the virtual connection sometimes is way easier because I know when you have young kids, a lot of times just to pack them up, get them yes. there, to have everything work that they can connect with other people's kids. It's almost easier sometimes to say, let's stay home. I know I've talking to one of our life groups in the strip district who has young kids and they said they're going to continue meeting at bedtime where instead of getting together and having dinner all together and chaos, that they're going to stay in their homes, put their kids to bed. And, and because they said they've been having better conversations Wow! because the kids are in bed and aren't <laughs> kind of distracting to the whole event. And so it's it's interesting it's some of learning. the learnings that are yeah. going to come out of this uh, for all of us. So so good. Well, somebody wrote in a question, and the question was, uh, which kind of characteristics of the seven churches in Revelation are true of Orchard Hill? And it was kind of an interesting question. And um, just we were talking before we came on how much these guys would love to do a summary of the seven churches. Um, so either of you want to su summarize the seven churches for us? I say we just call it Philadelphia and yes, call and, it a day. Uh, Here we go. Day. I was more hoping to summarize the book of Revelation. As well? Yeah. Just, I was just going to go, God wins. That's, you know, that, that's we're set. Billy Graham's quote. There it is, you know. In the end, me and Billy, we win. That's right, Josiah, Billy, you know, the whole thing. And, <laughs> there um, you have it. Uh, so, so the seven churches occupy Revelation two and three, and most scholars who look at it believe that they are, and don't just believe they are, seven literal churches that existed that uh, were written to, but that the, and this is what the scholars believe that they represent churches throughout time, and some would say. Um, you know, each church is represented like in different eras, different things, but they're probably typified throughout all time, different opportunities or, you know, challenges that churches have. And so here are the seven churches. You have Ephesus, which was the church that <laughs> forgot its first love at the very beginning. You have Smyrna, who was the church that was uh, being persecuted or suffering. You have uh, Pergamum, which is the church that was dealing with um some immorality, and then you have uh, Thyatira, which tolerated the the immorality, basically. You have Sardis, that seemed to be uh, complacent and comfortable, dead works. You have Philadelphia, that had the great opportunity, and then you have Laodicea, who was the church that was um, uh, neither Luke, uh, that was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. So I'm sure you have all of that exactly in your heads right now, and you're set to go. And, uh, and so here's, here's the, the, the real question, and I'm sure just knowing that we we're going to talk about this, you guys looked at this a little bit. Let me ask you first, kind of, what do you think is most typical of the American church today mm. on a whole? And then we'll talk more pointedly about Orchard Hill. But like, where do you think the American church kind of fits into this rubric of kind of words of commendation, words of you know, challenge mm. uh, that comes out of this. Yeah, something that you said and kicking us off is really on my mind and just thinking about this whole conversation. And that <laughs> is that in John writing this uh, prophetic sort of apocalyptic literature, 
his goal was really to be instructive to the church at large. And so addressing those initial seven churches in Asia Minor, he was doing so with us in mind, uh, you know, the church through all posterity. And so I just want to say, if we don't read about these seven churches and somehow see ourselves in there, we have an issue. Uh, so, you know, I know this wasn't the intent of the question, but, you know, it could it could kind of be a hey, a gotcha moment, tell us all your dirty laundry. And the fact of the matter is, man, each of us is individuals and each of us is a church. We're a group of people joined together as sinners saved by God's grace. And we are not a finished work. Mm -hmm. We're always in progress in God's grace as he works in his lives and uh, our lives throughout the life of our church and our lives as individuals. So uh, yeah, certainly I think there's a, a degree of humility that has to be present for each of us in addressing this. Yeah. Well, and just to be honest, when I read the question and just even the tone of it, which I didn't read, so you can't all read, I kind of felt like it was intended to be a gotcha question. Like, mm. ah. like you're either going to air something and we'll be able to say, see, or you won't say something and I'll say, see, you, you aren't. But my feeling is, yeah, that because actually my very first instinct when I read the question was to say, we're all of those things because the church is filled with people. And so if the church is people, that means we are the people who have held to our first love and abandoned our first love. We're people who've embraced sexual immorality and been pure. We're people who have uh, withered away under persecution and who have stayed strong. And, uh, and, and that might sound like a cop-out answer, but I think there's real truth to the fact that if you look at it, at all times, there are all of those people in any church, and at different times, all of us will be some of those people. Mm. I, I would say that Amanda and I talked about it even a little bit last night, and just sitting Amanda here— Amanda is your— My wife, Amanda. Just for you know those who don't know who Amanda is. Amanda and— <laughs> Amanda, uh, yes. Just thinking about— art conversation last night and what we're discussing this morning. Yeah. I, I would say that this is more probably of a reflective conversation than instructive mm -hmm. uh, because it allows us to, to really look at where we stand and to be cautionary. I, I think we mm -hmm. ought to reflect on those things. I think we should be doing those things daily. You know, mm -hmm. those are things that we ought to be uh, holding ourselves up against uh, the, the, the biblical mandate for what a church is. And, Yes, yeah, gives us a great opportunity to do it and to do it openly and hopefully genuinely and humbly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so again, let's just kind of go to the American church. If you had to pick kind of one or two things out of that, those seven churches and things that were challenges, what would you say is most indicative of the American church at this time? Mm. And then we'll bring more down to Orchard Hill. I'll just uh, share on one thing that is on my mind when you ask that question. <clears throat> I think that uh, in our culture today, we have a deep value for uh, tolerance and diversity when it comes to beliefs. And in some ways, you know, that is a, a benefit to our nation in that anyone is entitled to their own understanding of, you know, where truth and meaning is found. And so as a nation, we can operate as one, even though we come from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives. What is a challenge with the Christian faith is that we do believe that there is exclusive truth out there in terms of understanding who God is, in terms of uh, right and wrong, in our values, and also in our perspective on what it means to have a relationship with a holy God in our culture to say, I believe that human beings are created good in the image of the God who made us. 
However, we're lost on our own in our desire to live as a center of our own lives. We harm one another. We harm God by living as our own authority, our own standard. And so in God's word, he gives us a unique insight, this God-given perspective on what is true, what is right and wrong, and what it means to have a relationship with him, how that can be gained. And to say, I have the truth in God's word is a pretty offensive statement to many people in our culture who would say, truth is what I believe it is for me. Your truth is your truth. My truth is mine. And here in the Christian faith, you know, it can be uncomfortable when we say we believe that something can actually be nailed down in terms of what God has communicated, and that might exclude someone. And so I know that there are many who would say, I'm a Christian who would have a very difficult time saying to anyone, I believe that I can find the truth in God's word. And if you have a perspective, you know, on truth, that's based on your own understanding or your own senses outside of God's truth that is different from what I believe, many people who would say they're Christians would, would not feel comfortable making that statement. So I think that is uh, certainly an issue that is prevalent in the church today. Yeah, and if you're kind of wondering that the whole idea of this can come from both the church at Pergamum and Thyatira. In both of those, there's this this idea of um, <clears throat> tolerating the teaching that leads people astray, and and so uh, when we talk about tolerance, one of the indictments of of one of the churches is you're tolerating people proclaiming truth that isn't truth, and it's leading people from. Uh, a life that is honoring to God. And so that's, I, I think, really well stated. And and I think you, you find both ends of the spectrum, obviously, in the American church. You find churches that are um, really um, intent on the truth and sometimes even add truth to the word, meaning um, there will be, here's the standard, but we say all of this in addition. And then you find churches that that really do tolerate and water down things that you say, no, I believe that's really true. And so the constant tension or challenge for any church is to say, how do we, how do we find our way to, to insist on what the Bible insists on? Not like we have to call sin what the Bible calls sin. And we have to call good what the Bible calls good. And, and to, to be able to do that in a way that doesn't um, diminish either. And, and I think in a few weekends ago, I used an illustration of Lady Gaga talking about, uh, she was talking about Mike Pence and she was saying, I'm a Christian and Christian is all, Christianity is all about tolerance and you don't tolerate people because your wife worked for a school that excluded people with a certain sexual <clears throat> orientation. And what was interesting about that is her whole take was, was I'm tolerant of everyone except you who has a different view than me. And and again that you know people were applauding her like yeah this is awesome and and that is the 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 tolerance basically of that of mm. that moment. It's oh go for it George. I was going to say I think one of the ways that the uh probably the western church uh deals with it is not so much that we're so maybe liberal all the time in the West here, uh, but that you can get in front of, uh, of a, a church audience and not necessarily speak things that are so wrong or so heretical, uh, but they're, they're sort of theologically vacuous, you know, that we don't have to speak 
or preach heresy, uh, mm-hmm. but to just not speak truth is an easy thing. It's an easy um, enticement, I think, to do in order to gain, you know, the affections of uh, of a group of people, any group of people. Uh, so I, I think that's just one of the. That's well put. Yeah. In other words, oh, you don't have to. Point. You don't have to na- necessarily say something that's wrong. You just you, don't. Speak you just what's avoid right. any hard issues. Right. And always, you know, I, I was kind of, I chided maybe some of the churches who were, even in this coronavirus, just simply doing the how to manage your anxiety right. series. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it almost misses any broader truth in the moment then let me just help you feel good about where you're at. And and maybe that's an example in, would, in a small way. I'm not, I'm not saying any church that did that is in air, but but to always choose. And that's one of the reasons why at Orchard Hill we're very intent on exposition, because left to any of us, we'll all have our own hobby horses that we will choose over and over again. Whereas if you work through a text, sooner or later, you'll be forced to come to something that you're like, I don't want to talk about that but it's in the text. I have to deal with it. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, I think one of the real reasons for, um, it really, uh, like I would probably go so far in this, this is, I, I don't know if I should go this far, but I probably, I'll, I'll do it. You I'm, should I'm now. There. I don't think I would attend a church that did constant four week series selected by the pastor mm. that were topical. Uh, because to me, you are getting that person's take as good as it may be rather than the teaching of the Word of God. Mm. And, um, and and I'm not saying there's something that you can't do a four-week topical series ever, but I'm saying if that's the constant diet that the church gives, sooner or later you will have exactly what you just talked about, because no, no matter who the person is, they will lead themselves to just their own um, issues and their own predisposition. Yeah, and when we target our teaching based on what the text <laughs> would communicate, we're going to have to grapple with things that would make us uncomfortable. And even Mm -hmm. as pastors, there are things that we probably would just rather not touch Mm -hmm. that if we're being faithful to scripture and saying, man, I've, I've got to cover it. It's going to look weird if I preach John chapters one through seven and skip eight. Mm -hmm. I think uh, you made a great point. Something that is on my mind and kind of what you have shared here, uh, both George and Kurt in discussing how the church today can maybe soft pedal the truth rather than teach something that is overtly heretical. Just to be real specific about Orchard Hill Church, our issue is not that people are showing up on weekends and we're handing out coexist stickers for people to slap on their bumper. To be personal, I think an issue that we could that we would say, you know, many of us here at the church would wrestle with is taking the next step and communicating the uniqueness of the gospel when we share about our faith. And uh, maybe that is a way that we would be a little bit more uh, compromising in, in, a, in a way that would soft pedal around the truth. For example, it's easy for me to say to a friend, my faith is giving me a, a lot of hope in this difficult time. That's, that's one thing. It's another thing to say, my hope that God has met me with grace in Jesus Christ that can sustain me through this because I know that he loves me so much that he's met me in the midst of the brokenness in my own life and given me a hope in life and death through the forgiveness of my sin. Man, that changes my perspective on this. Those are two different things. Mm -hmm. And so uh, being able to take that next step and communicate with clarity our unique hope in Jesus Christ rather than, oh man, you know, like, Everything happens for a reason, and I believe in God, so faith is a, is a nice thing. We've got to be a little bit more clear. 
There's a way to, and, and I think we know this intuitively, there's a way to communicate faith that is inoffensive in our culture. And sometimes that's absolutely right, depending on the context you're in. But sometimes I think your point is absolutely right too. Sometimes that can be an easy escape valve when when maybe saying something that has a little bit of offense is actually more true to to the text and to scripture mm. in the conversation that we're in. Yeah, and I'm speaking personally and mm-hmm. sharing that, that I can sure. recognize times in my own life where I've had an opportunity to, to point people to Christ and maybe I've soft peddled and just been generally speaking about the benefits of faith. Mm. Uh, and uh, I don't want to miss those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else for the American church in general? And then we'll talk more pointedly about Orchard Hill. I think we'll probably end up rolling a few of those things in as, as we go along, because I think it's unavoidable to continue that conversation, even as we talk mm-hmm. about our church or any church around us. Uh, it's easy to find uh, errors around us. Um, it's easy to uh, probably look at, I, I mean, if, if we talk about what we experience personally uh, in my personal encounters with folks, you know, when they profess a, uh, their faith in Jesus Christ, sometimes a little uh, further walk with them. You know, if we go a little further into the deep end of the pool, uh, we find that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they don't necessarily understand uh, anything at the deep end of the pool. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a conversation we'll probably end up weaving in, well, in and out of a... And my guess is the what was behind the question is what, from a structure leadership level... Mm is true of Orchard Hill. But like they probably wasn't being asked in terms of what is everybody who, you know, attends Orchard Hill, right. what's the makeup? Because then your question is unavoidable. It's all of right. this because the church is made up of people. So it will be everything. And so probably what was more behind that is is, you know, where where is this church strong or where is it failing? Mm. Um, you know, if you were to do a self-assessment. Um, you know, if I were to look at the American church, I mean the easy low-hanging fruit is, uh, you know, Ephesus, the church that has denied its first love, you know, had a moment of loving Christ, and now it's like, oh, you know, we want God to make much of us instead of making much of God. I think that's a pretty easy thing. Uh, Certainly, you could talk about the sexual promiscuity of Pergamum and Thyatira. Mm. Um, Certainly, you could talk about Sardis, which I think is the church that was, has a reputation for being alive and is dead. Um, and I think you could talk easily about Laodicea, uh, which is the church that's lukewarm, meaning good for nothing. So, so, you know, it's pretty easy right. to, to look at this and say, you know, the suffering church, um, probably not as much. Um, although I would say that maybe one of the reasons we don't suffer is maybe we don't <coughs> proclaim the message as strongly as we should. Therefore, we don't suffer as, as much as we could. And Philadelphia, even the church that has an opportunity, I still think that the opportunity for the church to have a amazing impact is huge in our country. And so uh, in a sense, I can see all seven. So, so, so let's talk more pointedly then about Orchard Hill. What do you guys see when you, you know, kind of through those rubrics, look at Orchard Hill? Yeah. So in preparing for this question, uh, the church that I felt, uh, a sense of understanding that maybe some of the issues they were wrestling with or things that I could identify with was the church in Sardis. Uh, let me read the the passage here. You know, John writes, 
um, these words of Christ, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Uh, he writes to them the instructions to wake up. And you know, something that was unique about the city of Sardis <coughs> is that it was known as one of the most wealthy cities in the ancient Near East in its heyday. And this was a place where it was a diverse wealthy city. And so the church there actually wasn't experiencing a lot of persecution. And people in Sardis, you know, they were kind of free to practice their faith in a way like we talked about in our own culture, where maybe we are one of many. And so that temptation to soft pedal the truth would have been there. But I think more than anything else, when I read about, you know, Jesus' words to that church, uh, the, the phrase that comes to mind for me is comfort can lead to complacency. And I think that is uh, that is certainly true for the church today. Comfort can lead to complacency. And with this church, you know, he he writes to them, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. You know, it's interesting in the history of the church of Sardis, this church was in a city uh, high on top of a mountain, and it was thought of as being impenetrable in its day, but it was actually conquered twice. And in one Bible commentary I read, they said the reason for it being conquered is because, you know, the people responsible for guarding the city kind of fell asleep on their post. And I think these are words of instruction to all of us to remember, like, we've got to stay acutely aware of our need for God's grace and the foundation of God's grace for being the life of our community at all times. Because just like that church in Sardis, we can become comfortable uh, in our environment, whether that is being in a place that is tolerant of many different religious views and just saying, you know, we're going to allow Christianity to be one of many rather than saying we do believe in exclusive truth, or maybe even saying, I am just going to enjoy this wealth that we have found in our city. And I know that's true for many of us here in the North Hills. Certainly so in the grand scheme of this world that we live in, we can become people who are comfortable in our wealth, and that can lead to complacency when it comes to our urgency with the gospel message. And so, you know, here at a church like Orchard Hill, we have a lot of resources to be able to practice ministry. And in some ways, I read this passage and I'm like, man, I've got to remember that our hope, my hope in serving God and leading people always has to be in what he can do, not what I can structure, not what I can plan or strategize, you know, in, in any of my own efforts, but saying, God, how can I come alongside the work you're doing and do everything through hope and your Holy Spirit to accomplish the work of ministry that only you can do rather than relying on, on myself? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The, the virus, I think, has in many ways um, been a wake-up call. And what I mean by that is I think any church that does ministry for a while, you can kind of get in a zone of saying, oh, we do this and then this happens. We do this and then this happens. And I'll say to Dan sometimes, who plans our worship and our other worship team, you have to avoid a plug-and-play mentality. And what I mean by that is, well, we just put this song in here and this element in here, and that's our service and we know if we plan a service like that, good things happen. You know, in some churches, they'll call it a template. Like, you know, you need a template that, that, that you work from. And that's mm -hmm. true. It's, that's a liturgy if you go back. So, so I'm right. not saying that's a bad thing. But what you can do with a plug-and-play mentality is it's like, okay, I do this and out comes this. And that's where you can say almost, you know, because God has worked this way before, he'll have to work again rather than—, than then praying, seeking God, starting with a blank piece of paper and saying, God, what do you want today? Mm. What do we need? 
And I, and the reason I say I think COVID in some ways has been a wake-up call is it's forced everybody to say, oh, the ways that we were doing things, we can't just do things. Mm. And, and the fact that we can't, um, or haven't, I, I shouldn't use the word can't, that we have chosen not to have in-person meetings for now, um, has, has pushed that. Like all of a sudden you're saying, okay, what are we counting on? What are we looking at instead? And so it's, it's an interesting thing, but I, yeah, I think that's mm. a fair one. George, what about you? Oh, I just had 10 things uh, rumbling mm-hmm. around in my head. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to land. Um, I, I think that probably one of the uh, deepest issues that our church here at Orchard Hill um, needs to be concerned about, as well as any church is, is that we stay faithful to the biblical gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's easy to, uh, and because it's not native to us, I love that, you know, Martin Luther said that is the, the idea of the gospel is so alien to us that we need to hear it over and over and be reminded of it over and over again. And if we do anything wrong here, uh, whatever those things are, whatever we point out or whatever we uh, come to consensus to, even if we uh, petitioned our, our congregation, the one thing I love that we do here regularly is that the gospel message goes out faithfully. Uh, it goes out, uh, and we don't have Jesus as a life coach. Uh, he's not our mentor. You know, those are things that we perpetuate uh, from the stage and from uh, the pulpit in the in the chapel on a regular basis. Is that I believe it, the, from the bottom of my heart, we stay faithful to the gospel message, and I think it's one of the reasons uh, that we are we are seeing uh, like we just had a uh, a discovering Orchard Hill class of of over a hundred. There's something that is attractive to that that supersedes the attraction uh, that the cultural uh, church can can put together on its own to make it look pretty, uh, and they can. Uh, I don't I don't remember which of the uh, early ministers that said something like the in, the excitements uh, excitements to induce uh, repentance. I was Charles Finney or who it was that there is a way to induce the people to excitement in order to bring them to repentance, where I really believe that above all things, our mission here is to make sure that the gospel goes out for what it is Mm. uh, and not for how attractive we can make it look to people. And to remain faithful to that will will perpetuate Christ Church because he's building it on his Mm. message. So I appreciate that here for whatever we may do wrong. uh, I'm so grateful to be part of a community that that holds that standard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I've, um, you know, when I look at it, I think I said this, I don't think I said it, I did say it, but um, but I want to reiterate it. I think all of this is true of Orchard Hill, um, the good and the bad that's, that's recorded here, because I think we do have a large group of people, and so some of it will be true, and I believe church is people, not just the leadership. If I were to try to pick something that I, if I were to say, what is it that I'd really want to impress, you know, to people of Orchard Hill, I would say the church in Ephesus, the the words there, he says, you know, I have this for you. You know, you've done good things. You've worked hard. Uh, you've held good doctrine. But he says, but I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. And, and I think any of our problems ultimately come out of a lack of love, meaning, meaning we start to love something else more. And... And I think some of that's just part of living in our culture, 
like, like it's hard for any of us not to get more excited about finishing a painting project or a trip that we have or a graduation party or, you know, dinner with friends or, you know, a great um, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, our focus becomes these are the things that fill my heart rather than mm. God himself. And I think as a church family, um, because we live in a comfortable place and time, even though COVID has disrupted that again, but but because we do, it's easy to love all the stuff of the world mm. as much or more than God himself. I, I know... You know, I've probably said this in other places, but I'm always struck when I travel to Haiti and partner with our church that we've been part of there. And the people who have so little are so joyful. Um, and here, you know, you come and kids have, you know, everything imaginable and their depression's at an all-time high. And, you know, you have some of these things and you say, well, what's the difference between those? And some of it is we've put so much hope in this world and, and then we realize that it's empty. On the back end, and so I think if I were to, to to pick something, I would say that can be our challenge, and I think it's a constant challenge. Like I think my heart, anybody's heart, to say how do I keep my love for God um, to be strong? Well, that is the gospel message. At the end of the day, mm -hmm. I, the only way to do that is to keep reminding myself of His great love for me in spite of things. And, and, you know, it's not different than a, than a marriage, you, you know, anybody who gets married, you know, you have a moment when you're first married where it's like, this is awesome. And then, you know, a few years in, you're like, this isn't as awesome mm. as it once was. And then, you know, there's still awesome days. And, and so you have to work at marriage to try to keep growing in love. Mm. And, and I think the same thing's true spiritually where you say, okay, how do I continue to cultivate love and, and I think one of our jobs as, as pastors is certainly instruction in right doctrine, without a doubt. It's certainly governing the affairs of the church. It's certainly caring for people. But it's also saying, how do I, how do I personally keep love for Christ as what's, what's the core of my being? And then how do I, how do I help people come along in that? Mm. And uh, so, so that, that's something I would say. Would you say as the senior pastor that... Um while that's our mission here, it's probably, it can be difficult to make that keep going downhill. Uh, I mean, if even if the message is tight and strong and the gospel goes out, uh, perhaps making that a, uh, uh, helping people to understand it at a deeper level. Like, I appreciate knowing that our senior pastor holds that uh, that vision uh, of mission for the church. And I, I would hope that, you know, that's what everybody uh, that hears hopes that as well. Uh, but then to for folks to learn at a deeper level after they come to church on Sunday morning and they hear the faithful gospel message, what does that look like for them, you know, as the week goes on? How do we as, uh, as pastors uh, continue to uh, cultivate that deeper into the lives of people and challenge people uh, at a deeper level? It's a great question, and, and you know, it goes somewhat to what Josiah was saying about the reputation for being alive, wake up, um, in the sense of this, and that is we can try to program stuff, and we need to. Like, like I'm not saying we don't, but ultimately you can't program loving Christ more. You can disciple people, you can have programs that, that call for prayer, that call for accountability, that, you know, do all these things. But it's 
it's a it's an internal spiritual reality that comes from savoring the gospel that comes from a culture and and i think sometimes churches and this could be true of orchard hill try too hard to to program everything uh, in other words, we want these results, so let's build all these programs for this result. And you need to, uh, you know. Again, you want people to have a better understanding of the Bible. Well, you got to have a Bible class. Uh, so, 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 you know, you want your students to understand uh, the world. You got to have something for student ministry. Like, like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but I think, and this is why I say this goes to kind of what what Josiah was saying. We can start counting on our programming to do what we think it should do, rather than saying. No, this is about, again, all of us as as individuals surrendering our life to Christ. Now, having said that, um, Jesus himself gives a parable about the wheat and the tares and says, you know, you will have wheat and tares in the same field. And what does he say? He says, don't go in and try to get rid of the tares, because in doing that, you're going to destroy the wheat. Um, that was one of his, his parables. And his point was, was, you can try to root out you know, whoever doesn't have love for Christ, whoever isn't, you know, a, a disciple, and and you can bemoan that, but you're actually going to destroy my harvest. And so, what I want you to do is let them all grow together until harvest. Meaning, if you take Jesus' image of the church, you will have people in your church, even the best churches, who are not in love with Jesus, who don't follow the things. And again, I would say that at some point, all of us will be those people. That's part of why Jesus is saying, don't go in and, and slice it out, because you're going to hurt people who who that is the direction of their lives, mm. but who are in a moment of of maybe that not being true. And, you know, I mean, a, a simple example would be, you know, just take just take how we spend money. Um, and And, you know, I've probably said this kind of thing often, but you know, there are so many ways we can spend money. And if you really start to push that, um, you know, there are a lot of ways that any of us could say, well, is that the best use of money if Christ is the love of my life? Um, and and if you push that far enough, um, it, you know, all of a sudden it's, you know, why do you buy any new clothes at all? Why mm. do you need a new car? Do you really need a better car? Why couldn't you fix your last car? You know, why do you need to upgrade your TV? Why? And I mean, you just go down the list. And and my point is, is again, if if that's your rubric, rather than saying, saying no, this is people should make their own choices around these things. Our job is to try to call people to love Christ mm. and let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit, and not try to play the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. I, I would even go as far as that may be an extra special challenge in a in a in a large church community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that. If, although which, I pastored a small church too, and well, it wasn't that different. But let me the distinction yeah. I would say is well, maybe our experience is a little different. Uh, but I would say that, and I've not that anybody's ever ever said anything negative about our church community. But I always <laughs> challenge people to say, come to us one on one instead of firing a shot at the bow, you mm-hmm. know, of what happens perhaps uh, on the stage. Come and see us one on one, and I think, at least my prayer is that by the time we're done with that conversation, they may walk away saying, "Oh, further light has been shed. I can now see," uh, because that's not an easy mm-hmm. message to get across in a large church community where there's deep intimacy, you know, as there is in a, there can be in a small church community. 
And see, I would push back on that. And again, I, my experience, if you're not Pusher. familiar, is I <laughs> I pastor a church that was really pretty small, and you know, I've been at Orchard Hill for a while, which is probably not small. And um, and, and what I'd say is, there's more of an illusion of intimacy in a small church. What's different is everybody knows everybody. And so you get a chance to talk. Like when I was in a small church, you know, if, if if the weekend was really bad, you know, if the message was bad, well, you know, I'd go out and sit down with half the people in the lobby and it was all okay because they were like, oh, I got to talk to Kurt and I like Kurt. Kurt's a nice guy. We're, we're all good. At Orchard Hill, I can't sit down and make things okay relationally by talking to everybody personally, nor can our staff. And as a result, people, if something doesn't sit right in a weekend, they go out and say, this didn't sit right. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and there's no personal connection that's available to absolutely everybody, which it is in a smaller church. But I would say it's an illusion of deep intimacy. I think that's the point I'm, I'm trying intimacy. to make that point is that yeah. that can be our responsibility for folks in a larger church that they can't right. necessarily get to you. Uh, they have the opportunity. I encourage people, right. if they hear something that they didn't like perhaps mm-hmm. on Sunday morning, call one of us. Right. Uh, we're a little easier accessible. Uh, and our my hope is that we can maybe help to clear that up. Right. Love it. Two things I want to share for the person who's out there saying, you guys have shared some things about the church that you feel like you could be better. So what are you actually doing to make those uh, discipleship emphases take place? Something I really appreciate about our teaching approach here at Orchard Hill is we think about the heart when we speak as well as, you know, the mind and the actions. And so what that means is when we call people to a different kind of behavior in light of the gospel, we ask ourselves, what is the sin behind the sin? And really what we're what we're doing there is exposing the idols of our hearts. And so if we're talking about, you know, comfort in the things of this world, we're not going to tell people stop spending your money on, you know, $1,000 recliners. You've got to find your joy in Christ or your comfort in Christ. We're saying, you know, what are the things that you're really looking to, to give you a sense of comfort in this world that ultimately can only be found in God? We want people to engage with their heart. And so that is something that is always on our minds when we're talking about scripture What's going on inside of us? What's the sin behind the sin? How can we call people to faithfulness in light of God's grace, recognizing what is truly valuable in this world? The second thing I want to say is that something that emerged in, you know, this conversation as a whole is that all of life is repentance. George, you talked about Martin Luther. There's thesis number one of 99 on the Wittenberg doors. All of life is repentance. And so what that means is we're constantly turning back to Christ, recognizing that we are people completely in need of his grace. And so what that looks like for us at Orchard Hill is never assuming the gospel. We can never just say, you know what, we got that figured out. Let's move on to what we can do or to deeper teaching. This is a community where we say we are gospel-centered, and what that means is that we bring everything back to that essential message, and we say, are we helping people find and follow Jesus? And so... How does this play out in, you know, the values of this church, the, the ways that we want to be conducting ourselves? If you ever think that we are more excited about our auditorium project or our adult ministry programming or Kids Fest's latest inflatable than we are about the gospel, call us immediately because the gospel is the reason we are all here, the reason we get up in the morning the reason we pour our heart and soul into ministering to people here at this church for the glory of God. Um, the minute we assume the gospel, we are, we are out of luck personally and as a church. And so that is constantly on our minds. 
each and every day to turn back to Jesus. Yeah, that's well put. Um, you know, we, I, and I'll speak for you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, we don't think we have it all right uh, as far as how we do church. Um, we hope we do. We work at it. We pray about it. We repent. We uh, change. Um, we try to seek God, try to read Scripture. And and so we are open to critique. We are open to people saying, hey, you've got to you, you know, you missed it on this. And there have been a lot of times where we've changed things based on comments from people in the church who say, you ought to try this, or you missed on this. And uh, and I see that as the body of Christ functioning the way that it should function. Absolutely. Um, now, that doesn't mean that every comment that comes, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. There will be times where it's like, no, we really do have a reason that we've prayed through and feel good about. And so we're not just going to abandon you know, kind of an approach just because somebody makes a comment, but, but, um, but, but we do know that, that Orchard Hill is far from a perfect church. And, and the reason it isn't ultimately is because it's full of people and we're people, we're sinners. We're going to let anybody down who looks to us and any church that's honest and authentic will, will tell you that. And any church that doesn't, I would say, boy, run from that church because, uh, it's going to become a church that is pretending rather than than really re- realizing and living in the reality of the gospel. So, mm. so our hope is that we are pointing people to Christ, and no matter what is the sense that we may be doing wrong, uh, that we're always pointing to Christ, always pointing to Christ, that we're living in community uh, together with one another, uh, that we're not off, you know, on our own. Uh, I also think it was Martin Luther who said, you know, the surest way to end up in hell is to go and take your Bible and read it alone, uh, but mm-hmm. to read it in community with one another and to seek after your teachers and ask questions of your pastors and and roll these things over. We are open, as Kurt said, for critique, uh, but we want to point folks to Christ. Yeah. Uh, we don't point people to Kurt. We point people to Christ. We don't point to Josiah. We point to Christ. We're imperfect people, uh, but we have a perfect uh, head. Well, thank you. We're going to leave it there. Thank you for uh, taking a few minutes to uh, sit with us today and just uh, have this conversation. As always, if you have questions, you can send them to askapastor at orchardhillchurch.com, and we'll be happy to address them in a coming episode. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate it.